Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Scaria. I'm joined by my co-host today, Louis Abud. Pleasure to be here as always. Thanks, Louis. And we are joined by some awesome guests today from Singapore. I'm joined by Kenta Iwasaki and Dorji Sun, co-founders of Perlin. Kenta, welcome to the show. Dorji, welcome to the show. Thanks, hey guys. guys. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for coming on. Let's let's start out with your background and how you got into the wild space of crypto. Let's start with you, Kenta, and then we'll hit it off to Dorji. So Kenta, what were you doing before uh, Perlin and, and how did the, your learnings in that space become Perlin eventually? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for sort of like a long, long way in background, um, I started programming when I was about six years old. I was really doing it primarily because I got a huge sort of interest in hacking, in particular cybersecurity and all that. I mainly got into crypto because I was working a lot within the sort of gray hat slash white hat marketplaces online for software and got in touch with Bitcoin at around 2009. Uh, legitimately when Bitcoin was around, first just released. Uh, back then in those sort of uh, sites, they would used to transact with a lot of different sort of online virtual currencies, not Bitcoin, such as Liberty Money, uh, Web Money, PayPal, all that kind of stuff. But as my guess, because of all the sorts of different regulations, um, many of those sort of virtual currency sites now do not exist. All of a sudden, a big sort of trend happened forward over with Bitcoin being used to transact follow that sort of different software online. And uh, that's when I got my first hands into Bitcoin transacting, providing licenses to softwares I used to sell back then over for Bitcoin. Uh, and that really was my intro to, to crypto, really. Previously, I've worked primarily on second layer Ethereum scaling solutions. So the whole sort of side chain, state channel business had a lot of very interesting conversations, even with guys from L4 Ventures, Jeff Coleman, who started up the whole state channel movement, I would say. And prior to that, I've worked heavily on statistics, signal processing, artificial intelligence, uh, being one of the heads for AI for the Naver group, which is somewhat like the Google for Korea back then. So I worked in Korea for quite a bit. Uh, working on a ton of different distributed systems, a ton of different artificial intelligence models, etc. Dorji, let's go over your background quickly. Yeah, sure. So unlike Kenta, I did not start coding at six. I had a relatively normal childhood and I did not have an interest in hacking at such a young age. <laughs> I had faith in institutions. But I, uh, I did law and I did commerce in, in Sydney, Australia, and I've done a number of startups. So now 20 startups, mostly in technology and environmental, which is where my passion lies. And what's interesting is in 2014, so prior to this, I'd done several software companies. I'd, I'd exited my positions and uh, I got really passionate about the environmental movement, about carbon credits and uh, being a scientific evidence-based type guy, you know, had uh, gone quite deeply into carbon trading Conservation of rainforest was the main area, and we raised a lot of money to protect rainforests for carbon credits. But in the failure for ratification of a number of carbon markets, we really could see the failure of governments. And so I was on this very interesting leadership dialogue to Stanford. And so the America Australia Leadership Dialogue is an annual event where they'll send, you know, ministers and treasurers and CEOs from Australia 
um, as well. So I was on that tour to America. We were at Stanford and the last speaker at Stanford was a guy called Nick Sullivan. And um, he basically was talking about Bitcoin. So this is 2014. And at the time, you know, I was heavily invested, but very disappointed in instruments like carbon credits, which relied on governments. And so he walked in and he basically, and this is, I was sitting with the, um, one of the directors of the, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the head of the Australia Post, all of these, you know, titans of industry. And he just basically looked at us, looked at the whole, you know, crowd, everyone in the suits. And they said, you know, centralized systems are dead. And, um, he basically gave this 20 minute speech talking about decentralized systems, talking about distributed ledgers, talking about Bitcoin. And after that speech, everyone, you know, most of the conventional leaders were like, you know, who is this guy? He came in in a hoodie. He was not particularly well-dressed. But after that, I, I chased him out of the room and we kind of walked the campus for an hour. And then from there, he was doing a startup. It was called Change Tips. So I joined joined as a co-founder. Um, he, he's now actually a shout out to Nick. He's a CTO at Good Money uh, with some very good people. Anyway, long story short, what was really fascinating was, uh, so we started this venture, changed it, but ended up raising money. Um, this was then after that, Mt. Gox was hacked. So there was, it was kind of a period when BTC was ranging between $500 and $1,000. And to be honest, uh, you know, I was interested. There was a lot, it was very early. So that's how I first got into, into cryptocurrencies. But, you know, it was still ve- a very early stage. And, you know, after about a year and, and, and a bit, I kind of stepped back. Um, from from change tip just because I wasn't sure which way the market was going. Like, was it going to make a breakout or was it going to step down? And you know, but you could see the the growing interest and you could see the momentum at that stage. So that's kind of my first uh, on entree into into this industry. And how did you two meet and and get introduced? And you know, tell me about the beginnings of Perlin. Sure thing. Do you mind if I give my version first, Kento? <laughs> of course, go ahead. So, so anyway, after that, you know, my, my, um, my wife and I, we did some angel investing. We looked at ICOs. We did a bunch of different things in the space, just kind of learning about, you know, how things were moving. And, you know, being based in Singapore, they just started to become these regular meetups. And you could really see, you know, going back to other industries that I've been in, you can see kind of the genesis of an industry. And so at one particular meetup, I remember. It was quite early on in 2017, and um, I met with the team from Santiment. So Santiment is the SAN token, and they do on-chain analytics. So they're a pretty good team, and uh, I, I joined them as COO. And so that was 2017, and then you know was one of the leadership for there, and then basically tied up as well with a, a few other groups where I advised. And then Republic Protocol came around, and I was one of the executive advisors there, and I worked closely with that team. Anyway, so, so end of 2017, we were really inspired. So back, at, back in the day, looking at SETI at home, looking at these folding at home, these distributed computing networks, we were really interested in that, just a group of us. We were sitting around Singapore chatting about it. And um, you know, at that point, the CEO of um, Republic Thai, um, he kind of said, well, I was just reading this amazing blog by some dude you know, on second layer scaling solutions. And uh, that was the first time, you know, he mentioned, so this was end of 2017, he mentioned Kenta. And so at the time, Kenta was squirreled away at Neva doing research work. Um, Ty gets on a plane, flies over to Korea, you know, really digs him out. Kenta was sick at the time. And so we thought he, he was evading us because, you know, basically Ty went specifically to meet and then Kenta just didn't respond or wasn't able to meet him for a few days. Finally, they meet. Um, and, you know, and then it just kicked off. I think it was just an, an absolute meeting of the minds. 
He really shared our passion and vision. And um, that's kind of when we, we basically said, look, we've got to get this guy. And so we flew him to Singapore. He insisted on bringing, you know, his partner, his girlfriend at the time. So we ended up, you know, basically funding a, a trip, but we got to really work and hang out together and, um, you know, never looked back after that. Kenta, maybe I missed anything from your side. What did you think? Yeah, the whole sort of meeting down in South Korea. So this was during the time I was working over in Naver and uh, I was just about to sort of get my side project, which was a cryptocurrency, a decentralized cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, which utilized a lot of the second layer Ethereum scaling solutions that I was working on. So Ty, yeah, he he's sort of a fundamental guide to how exactly Perlin definitely got started. So he flew all the way over to South Korea, and we were talking about all the sorts of different second layer scaling solutions that I was working on. But what was really interesting was then he extended his hand over for me to potentially quit Naver and work for his project, uh, Republic Protocol. I was doing really good over at the time at David, of course, though. So I rejected the offer. But what then came next was that Ty started talking a lot about his past. And he was overall talking about primarily in the olden days, like say when he was about 15 years old, he used to sell software online in, in a lot of these sort of white hat, sort of gray hat forums that I used to be a part of. I was part of those exact same sort of communities. It turns out that we knew each other by our pseudonyms online and uh-huh. we were both selling software That's actually. Amazing. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, fast forward then, uh, I was 19 years old. Quite surprising. Uh, we, we met each other in real life for a while and we started talking all about all, all the kinds of stuff we did when, when we were young and like all the sorts of people that we've dealt business with back then. And then he told me that, hey, you've got to really meet this guy that I know. And in this case, this guy was Dorji. <laughs> so, so that's how the conversation as, otherwise started. Otherwise known as Pikachu99. That was my <laughs> handle in those, in those forums. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, initially, when you guys came up with the idea for Perlin and really started uh, building things and, and putting together the strategy and the actual product, you really wanted to uh, build a decentralized cloud compute platform, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And then now the scope is brought into uh, really a smart contracts platform that can enable, you know, n- like nodes, like a smartphone to actually participate in a decentralized cloud uh, compute platform, right? So what mm-hmm. uh, what precipitated, you know, tell me about that, about that change in strategy, you know, what, what was going on in your mind initially when you came up with the initial product and then you started uh, thinking through it and, and started implementing it and realized that you got to kind of broaden the sp- scope here? Yeah. So first of all, we haven't changed strategy at all, just to be clear. We just are evolving the same way that technology is evolving. So when we first dreamed up the, the concept, the idea was really simple. It really looked at search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, which had over a million computers concurrently running um, at, a, at a period in time. And we really saw, look, more and more compute is whether it's in a smart car, whether it's in a smartphone, whether it's in a PlayStation, you know, lies idle. So, you know, PlayStations are used for less than 10% of the day. Most of the times, this really powerful gaming chip just sits idle. And so, especially with bandwidth uh, increasing and, and speeds increasing and ubiquity, and especially when you look at the wealth gap as well, we saw this almost as a way to get universal basic income. But just to be clear, when we started to make our projections around when handphones would be powerful enough and when 
you know, broadband speeds would be fast enough. We always projected that it was going to be in the future. It was basically skating to where the, the hockey puck is going to go to. And um, you can anticipate that in the next few years, this is going to be an absolutely doable um, revenue generating and distributed ledger system. And when you think about it, you know, right now, um, you know, it's in the order of 200 to $300 billion in terms of the compute market. You know, just AWS itself as the largest player topped around 40 billion US last year. So we, we just looked at it as though, you know, if we could, if we could attain, you know, 10% of that market share, redistribute it to people with handphones or, or, or laptop devices or, or gaming units around the world who wanted to earn $10, $20 a month, then suddenly you've got this distributed compute platform, which also has a social impact perspective. So we absolutely are going to execute on that. And we, but we always, you know, from the beginning saw it as a 10 year roadmap, a 10 year journey. What changed along the way was we, and just to take a step back, I often call myself like, you know, instead of a project manager or a CEO, I'm more of a chief coach because we just have one of the most talented teams. Like in my 20 startups, I've just never found a team of, of such talent, um, but also raw talent because, um, you know, Kent is CTO, but he's also our lead dev. So sometimes, you know, he'll just go into a, a coding zone and, uh, you know, disappear, you know, literally from communication for a few days, but then emerge and then have built something amazing. So what happened along the way was when you started to look at the applications for blockchain, there were just so many powerful use cases. And I'll let Kenta talk more about the differentiators with Wavelet. But just from my side, because I have engagement with governments, with trading houses, with Singapore, so Singapore in global trade of 11 to 12 trillion US dollars a year, Singapore facilitates 1 trillion, over 1 trillion. And it's the number two hub and it's soon to be the number one hub in the world for trade. And so with the government creating their own national trade platform with all of the major commodities, so 80% of the major commodity houses and trading houses are in Singapore, have a, have a headquarters, a regional headquarters. So we just started talking to banks and commodity traders and where they saw the biggest use case for blockchain was things like trade documentation and settlement of transactions and inco terms and how do you create paperless trade and hybridized trade. So inter interoperability between paper and, and digital. And so we just started just because we had such a phenomenal team and fantastic connectivity. Um, we just kind of started to work in that space. So what we're starting to see is, you know, base layer is Wavelet, this phenomenal um, new consensus mechanism with, with blockchain capabilities, DLT. And then on top of that, we just started building decentralized applications you know, just kind of doing work which was related to trade that then started mushrooming out. So now we have this fully fledged um, trade division, which is also building into later on, you know, the work that's going to happen with the, the decentralized cloud. But, but just to be clear, we've always had a 10 year horizon on this. And when you look at all of the significant networks in the space, nothing was created in a day, like Rome wasn't built in a day. So we see ourselves, you know, we're literally, you know, year one of year 10. And um, super exciting. So, so nothing has changed. It's still on track. It's just more that we've always anticipated that the decentralized cloud, particularly mobile component, is going to take a couple more years just for the technology cost curves to drop, as well as adoption rates and, and broadband, more law, compute sort of stuff to catch up. 
But uh, Kenzie, maybe you want to give your take on Wavelet and, and some of the benefits and why we kind of ended yeah. up in these spaces. Yeah, let me uh, ask a, a follow-up question before we get into uh, Wavelet. And, and I and thank you for going over that, Dorji. I think it makes perfect sense. You guys uh, being in Singapore, it's obviously a huge international uh, trade hub, so it lended itself uh, to those kind of use cases initially. And uh, one follow-up question I had was, if you have this 10-year horizon of uh, you know uh, of adoption and things like that for for decentralized compute, why did you choose to build your own independent blockchain rather than maybe rely on Ethereum to scale to accommodate this uh, this kind of use case? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I can answer that. Yeah. So one of the you sort of look back all the way in the early sort of 2018s, uh, December. 2017 sort of ish time look at the distributed ledger space and one of the biggest things you could see is all right we've got this really great idea we want to go about building a very unique sort of methodology for people to be able to earn universal basic income right you go about building a decentralized application but then you look at the market you try to attempt to find a distributed ledger for your app to live on and Looking at all the different sort of specs of available public ledgers, you find that there's just no one viable solution out there. Um, you look at Ethereum, they were boasting about 34 transactions per second. The transaction latency uh, for time to finality, of course, was relatively large, 30 minutes to one hour in the peak period, sort of about. And you just saw all of these other kind of vaporware products coming into development with very sketchy statistics claiming that they could do 100,000, 1 million transactions per second, but of course within a, in a more centralized setting than per usual. Mm-hmm. Looking at all those different kinds of ledgers, you come to think, well, obviously that would be off-putting to, to me as a developer because if all I wanted to do was build an application that had moderate to uh, relatively high frequency user activity, and of course with a desire of relatively low user or time to response or time to finality like you know i expect something zero to four seconds at most ish even if it's a distributed network none of the blockchains just really cut it back then that's primarily the main reason why we then sought out okay because the space still does seem very immature we had to go to our own lengths we had a really great uh developer team a lot of sort of child prodigies i would say 17, 19, like 24-year-olds working on compilers, kernels, operating systems, and a whole sort of slew of different computer science research fields. It just made so much sense. You know, what if we just scrape through everything, all the research that's been done over the decades since since Bitcoin got released and then afterwards went on to build our own ledger? And after all of this research, uh, you you sort of landed on the DAG architecture, which is not exactly a, a blockchain. It's sort of a different data structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did all that research end up end up there? What is a DAG? Can you can you kind of intro the audience to that concept? Right. Actually, so a DAG, a directed acyclic graph, um, sort of a graph that stagnates in one axis, like in one sort of fixed axis. Um, the way I would primarily describe a DAG is that it's nothing new at all. Bitcoin itself is a DAG. Um, to, to give a little bit more information about this, um, if we go into the whole Bitcoin's consensus protocol, uh, you, you would know of alternating histories as different forks, right? 
um, different forks sprawl out in different directions. And the whole point is miners have the capabilities for, for mining to be able to append a single block onto one of these alternating forks. If you plot out all of the available forks that, say, a single node knows about, that itself is DAG. Now, what's unique about Bitcoin is you, you're given this sort of DAG is that they, they have this sort of rule to choose one of the forks as the effective ground truth blockchain. Hence being the rule, the longest chain rule, uh, we, we figure one of those forks out to be the right choice because of the fact that it's the longest in length in comparison to other forks. So, so that's just a matter of heuristics. Like, like if you're given the sort of directed graph, the heuristic that Bitcoin uses for nodes to, to, to pick the ground truth chain is the longest chain rule. But, but then comes the question, what if you actually looked into other kinds of heuristics? What if it was not the longest chain rule? What if it was through some sort of mini voting scheme on top? What if it was via some other correlations or some other cool little statistics you can derive out of the graph? If you could use those statistics to achieve the exact same sort of effect you'd get out of consensus. That effectively is what these sort of new class of DAG protocols really focus on. It's going back to the basics and figuring out what is there any better alternative out there apart from the longest chain rule. And so how would a, a new node or validator in a DAG network verify which is the valid chain? So, of course, there's many different ways, in particular for our ledger wavelet, of course. Um, it has a relatively unique solution where the, if you're given a bunch of conflicting forks, the way you would resolve, uh, the way you would choose one fork out of many alternating forks to be the ground truth blockchain is via this sort of probabilistic voting scheme. Don't want to get, get too much into the nitty grits unless you'd want to, but it's basically via a sort of statistical sampling technique where nodes could sample from their their neighbor, the neighboring nodes in the network. If you could like plot a distance, uh, a distance metric between nodes and afterwards figure out which nodes are closest to you, talk to those nodes, sample their opinions statistically, and by iteratively sampling many, many times, you learn of an opinion or sort of garner a probabilistic consensus that one of the forks out of many n forks is a ground truth blockchain. So, so that's the approach that a wavelet particularly takes. And um, it's this sort of technique, it's popularly known as snowball sampling, which was a statistical sampling technique in around 1967-ish by Leo Goodman. And do you... Um well, you're using a derivation of avalanche as the consensus mechanism, but not exactly avalanche. Uh, what kind of tweaks did you make? What were the inherent design flaws with avalanche that you discovered? And how did you improve on it uh, uh, with the wavelength? Mm -hmm. So there's a really amazing sort of slew of consensus protocols that was really introduced within the Snowflake to, to avalanche paper. The one biggest sort of hesitation that, that, that we got as a team, though, was avalanche in itself so snowflake slash snowball uh, these 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 free consensus protocols that were introduced in the paper they were golden they introduced the notion what if all of a sudden we had probabilistic consensus instead of deterministic consensus and and what what i mean by deterministic consensus is specifically exactly that of the longest chain rule what if you switch that up use some sort of probabilistic mechanisms instead 
to be able to figure out what is the right fork out of many conflicting forks. What we did different was we noticed Avalanche had a lot of very big flaws, primarily in that one of its purposes was real was that Avalanche was really made solely just for handling monetary transactions. And the, only, and the reason why, like, this is even state of in the white paper itself, is that Avalanche is only able to guarantee a partial ordering of transactions. What I mean by that is that if you looked, say I made two transactions, imagine that there was a bank smart contract app, and I, and I did two transactions in a very specific order. I, dip, I have $0 in the beginning, I deposit $500, and then I'll send $500 to somebody else. To two different nodes in a network that's utilizing Avalanche consensus, one of the nodes might notice that I deposited $500 and then I transferred $500, perfectly fine. On another node, however, because Avalanche is only able to guarantee a partial ordering of transactions, the system would see it as though I attempted to transfer $500 first, but I don't have $500 to begin with, so the transaction is rejected. And then I deposited $500. This this clear sort of lack of ordering, that the ordering is inconsistent across nodes in Avalanche, is a very big problem for anything that is not monetary in a sense. Because if you imagine your platform supported smart contracts, you would have to rely on something else to be able to give you the ordering because the order in which smart contract functions get invoked is extremely important if all of a sudden you know the crypto kitties every single node saw different different timings different orderings to how crypto kitties get spawned here and there the whole system would sort of just be broken <laughs> so so like looking at at this particular flaw uh, that avalanche team had some suggestions on how exactly they could fix fix avalanche such that there is a total ordering of transactions but the solution was very very hacky it was via bootstrapping another consensus mechanism on top of Avalanche to guarantee an ordering of transactions. So we went back to the drawing board. You've got these golden, uh, what I would call snow family of consensus protocols. What we could then do instead is rather than going for the methodology that Avalanche uses to construct a new DAG consensus protocol out of the snow family, we would go about making our own DAG consensus protocol out of the Snow family. And hence, that's what effectively spawned up Wavelet, which is our ledger as of today. And it boasts a lot of very interesting properties that make Wavelet very practical for use cases, especially for the whole original use case that we wanted to create a decentralized cloud marketplace in the very beginning, which needed low time to finality and a relatively high transactional throughput. I was just going to ask how Wavelet achieves total ordering of transactions. So that's definitely something that would not be explainable within 10 minutes. I mean, it can go on, but on a high level, the way Wavelet does it is that say you've got a DAG of transactions, basically almost the same DAG of, of forks. What Wavelet does is it introduces the concept of uh, consensus rounds. You've got the whole sort of Bitcoin mempool where every single sort of node consistently receives new transactions from all kinds of different peers. And what then happens is you execute Snow the Snowball consensus protocol to thereafter pick or sort of choose 
what subset of those transactions in each node's individual mempool is gets chosen to be a block. So you're trying to garner consensus on if I'm given a bunch of pending transactions, uh, can I figure out with the rest of the nodes in the network um, what subset and the ordering of the subset of transactions in my mempool and other nodes' mempools get constructed to become a block? That block then gets created, gets broadcasted out into the network. And because it's already been finalized via Snowball, the, the block is then itself effectively finalized and then consensus is, is done. So that's sort of the new way Wailwood does it. It's scraping together pending transactions, ordering them up, turning them into a block. We actually tend to call it a consensus round in Wailwood. And then finalizing the contents of the block and the size of the block all through uh, the snowball consensus mechanism. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. Um, to be honest, it's a little over my head, but I'll have to take your word for it <laughs> because you guys are live right now uh, on Testnet. Uh, people can play around with this. So it's all out in the open. Uh, congratulations, by the way, on the launch. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And uh, before we move on to more of the developer platform uh, oriented questions, are there any inherent trade-offs that you're making, uh, you know, with, with uh, security or scalability, any sort of compromise uh, with this DAG architecture? Mm -hmm. So there's one sort of trade-off, which could definitely be further improved in future versions of the Wavelet protocol itself. It's that there still does exist a chance where especially when the network is under very, very high congestion, that uh, transactions, even if they are honest, could potentially be dropped. That is primarily because of the consensus protocol taking a slight bit of time to be able to adapt to the load of the network or to, or to the congestion of the network. And in amidst that transition period, some of the transactions could be dropped. So in order to sort of compensate for that, what one would typically have to do then is they would have to resubmit their transactions and retry them. But given that it's only a few drop transactions as of right now, and of course, there's no sort of integrity of the system loss, we find it a very reasonable trade-off to, to begin with for the initial renditions of Wavelet. Because either way, you'd still boast that high-level scalability, 31,000 transactions per second on top of uh, many large nodes uh, with with the whole network being leaderless or independent so that nodes can independently operate as validators and not have to do any sort of weird electoral voting schemes and whatnot that you'd see in Tendermint or Algorand, et cetera. And so can you explain that difficulty parameter and sort of the role of uh, critical transactions in Perlin consensus? Mm -hmm. So going all the way back to, to that sort of little talk I gave about, you have a bunch of pending transactions, nodes come to consensus on uh, scraping together a subset of those pending transactions to make a block. Basically, the way you choose that subset of pending transactions is via uh, some some marking transactions. If you choose a subset, there's a start and an endpoint. The critical transactions in this case are those start and endpoints uh, that then make up the subset of pending transactions. And in particular, these critical transactions happen randomly or come together randomly. So imagine that you have a system where every one in a thousand or every one in 500, it's a completely sort of random mechanism. One of these transactions might so happen to just to be marked as a critical transaction. 
the very moment a critical transaction is marked and you find it, you would then thereafter, if you imagine your your mempool or your list of pending transactions as an array, you'll pick one you'll have from index zero up to some other index, that index being the index of the critical transaction that is spawned. Take all those transactions from index zero to index n, where that critical transaction is, and that would pretty much be the block. So it's like a random marker for deciding what subset of transactions to process in inside this the snowball consensus mechanism. Uh, the difficulty parameter adjusts the frequency and how often a critical transaction might so happen to appear. So as I said, it might be one in every 1,000 transactions you see, one in every 100 transactions you see. And and this, uh, this frequency is effectively adjustable with respect to the difficulty consensus protocol parameter in this case, which is a dynamically tuned parameter in itself uh, with respect to the network load. Right. Okay. And so, how how does the uh, the network and throughput scale with um, more nodes and validators joining? Uh, so, you know, what are, what are the kind of capacity constraints on on wavelet scalability? So it it really depends on uh, exactly what kinds of statistics you you get while looking at the network during a benchmark, because there's so many different ways you could you could look at benchmark statistics. In particular, if say for example, uh, it's a matter of you you broadcast a transaction, and you you want to know how long it takes for it to finalize if the network all of a sudden gets larger, there basically is an eventual moment or period in time where once you once you send a transaction, the the latency with respect the, the time to finality for your transaction with respect to the number of nodes in the network is logarithmic. So it'll logarithmically increase the amount of time it takes for your transaction to finalize as more nodes get added to the network, which is a which is overall very good. So if you have like a million nodes, the network can still fundamentally operate. Yeah, that that seems relatively scalable then. Um okay, uh, if Louis, if you don't have any questions about the uh technology, we can move on to developer. Uh, I guess I guess um that there's the question of like uh you know bandwidth and like the efficiency mm-hmm. of the the gossip protocol is is that something that you expect to to run into um and like what are the sort of requirements that you've seen in the the benchmarking that you've done oh definitely yeah so i, I can talk a lot about the benchmarking because uh, I, i'm the one that mainly conducted the benchmarks with another core team member and we did it for two weeks straight <laughs> so a bit more about the cluster. It's 240 nodes. They're all consumer grade PCs. And we ra- and we made an um, automated benchmarking tool that runs on top of Kubernetes. So it was 240 consumer grade nodes, basically two vCPUs and four gigabytes of RAM. Uh, the sort of system specs that you could see on any kind of consumer grade laptop, for example, or even, even a mobile phone nowadays to specifically get that 31,240 transactions per second number. Uh, we intentionally simulated some very drastic networking conditions where every single message sent, there was a messaging, there was a latency for a single message to be sent to another peer being 220 milliseconds, which is a very realistic sort of, uh, induced latency on the system. Uh, it's, it's something like my, how my connection would be like, uh, going over from Singapore all the way over to the US. So, um, it's taken into consideration what if, two different wavelength nodes were apart from each other, like from one side of the world to the other. 
we simulated a 2% packet loss. So if 2% of all messages basically get dropped every single second, can the network still uh, function without any sort of catastrophic failure? Uh, we also included that in. And uh, we even introduced events where nodes would randomly drop. So say if I were to kill a node, or which could uh, realistically imply what if uh, a node lost connection, what exactly would happen to, to Wavelet's consensus? All those conditions were running, all the nodes were still stable, and with that we still sustained 31,240 transactions per second with about 0 to 4 second uh, time to finality. So yeah, that's that's overall the sort of benchmarking specifications. <laughs> right, okay. And so if you were to try and optimize uh, you know, each part of Perlin and Wavelength to increase that throughput, what would you be looking to change? Right, so... To answer one of the questions, parts of the questions I forgot to answer, it's the gossiping protocol. Yeah. <laughs> so the gossiping protocol is a very naive one so far. It's bootstrapped on top of what they would call the Eskademli overlay network, which is just used to re reinforce the securities and communication amongst peers. Because it's very naive right now, there's some very interesting solutions we've noticed over from the Bitcoin core community especially one if one recently by the two guys Gregory Maxwell and Peter Wheel called efficient bandwidth relay for bitcoin so specifically with regards to that so of course it's a, it's a matter of reducing the bandwidth actually in during the benchmarks wavelet each node only used about 780 kilobytes per second um in terms of transfer rates for that 31240 number but we can significantly get that much lower if we were to go about improving the gossiping protocol, which is what we're working on um, in plan for or in lieu for the mainnet, which is coming out around the end of this year. Also, syncing, I would say, is definitely a sort of bandwidth hamper because as these benchmarks are going on, you've got 10,000 transactions happening per second. How exactly would you be able to? So, you know, there's a node all across the world and then there's your own node say situating with Asia, it might take you a while for you to be notified or be aware of a transaction that happened and that's being spread all the way from the US to be able to be so you're most probably gonna lose a knowledge or not really know of a lot of missing transactions a lot of transactions that are that that you're not aware of within the network you need to somehow be able to sync all of that otherwise you can't necessarily participate in consensus so figuring out ways, even under high transactional throughput or under high network congestion, can you still somehow figure a way to efficiently synchronize, be aware of all the transactions that are really happening within the network? And right now we're using a, a naive solution yet again for transaction syncing at the moment, but actually that is something where we're, we're working on right now and we're looking to finalize uh, an efficient strategy and implement it within Wavelet's uh, core code by around the end of August. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I guess one other issue kind of around um, scalability that has arisen is, you know, with the, the higher throughput chains is that the cost of storing the entire transaction history becomes prohibitive and results in some centralization. So what, what right. considerations have you made around uh, storing that transaction history? So because uh, Wavelet itself is primarily focused to be a smart contracts platform, we, we opted in for the strategy where 
state history is not fundamentally important or something of a necessity that all notes have to keep. Of course, this is a big sort of uh, con- controversy because um, Bitcoin has these sort of properties as well, but people always choose to, to hold on or keep the block histories per se. But once you start going to the lengths of having, say, 10,000, 30,000 transactions happening per second, uh, the disk storage for keeping all those transactions become pro- prohibitively expensive. So there's still the option, of course, if you choose to want to keep or archive that history uh, for the sake of uh, ensuring the, the entire integrity of the graph. Um, but in this case, we don't primarily recommend it for Wavelet users. And we've got very sort of safe mechanisms in place to allow people to prune away history that is no longer of necessity as the network continues and garners consensus. So it's essentially a light node, right? Not really a light node because in reality, you're actually validating all of the states. And based on the way the DAG is constructed, every single time you believe that a transaction is all right, you're also contesting to the entire ancestry of of that very same transaction uh, being valid as well. I see. So it's much more secure over a light node. It's actually equivalent to that of the securities of what you would see of a Bitcoin full node. Okay. So you have you have a a, a DAG with Wavelet uh, consensus. Um, are there any particular use cases or applications you feel that your smart contract platform is is better positioned to handle? So in terms of the the wide brevity of use cases that Wavelet was really meant to handle, um, because of its low low time to finality, it's actually really very well suited for any kinds of applications you see that might make sense. Uh, if built on top of a serverless platform. So say, for example, any of the kinds of cloud services where you would want to uh, not have to care about the backend or the database, all you want to do is care about the front end, the looks, and interconnected with a very reliable database backend. Wavelet already effectively functions as that. And a lot of the sort of demo dApps that we've made, even just a decentralized chat, and just under 100 lines of code, not even like esoteric solidity code, just just uh, Rust or even assembly script, which is a variant of TypeScript, you can make a fully functioning that writing primarily just front-end code. And are there any first protocols or applications uh, that you're seeing uh, developers come to Wavelet with? There's definitely quite a lot of different interests. I'm not 100% sure if I can name names per se, because a lot of them are using it privately. In terms of developing with Wavelet at the moment, but there's already quite a decent-sized community coming up, uh, releasing open-source apps on top of Wavelet thus far. Like, say, for example, just a simple decentralized to-do app all the way up to a decentralized medium alternative, like a decentralized blog. There's all of these kind of really interesting products that people are building that I'm really excited for with Wavelet. So what are the key considerations for smart contract devs when building uh, on Perlin and Wavelet? The biggest considerations is uh, very low amounts of code because I, I don't want to have to go about... I've, I've filled it with Ethereum a lot back then while writing second layer scaling solutions. The web-free JS sort of ecosystem is very, very messy. The documentation's all over the place. There's about the hundred different forks of the very same WebJS, FreeJS code. Our sort of front end or web connector to Wavelet 
is about 800 lines of code, but it's in just one single file. So if you can understand about one single file, you'll know exactly how to write browser code for Wavelet or even mobile code or any sort of code to connect over to Wavelet. So ease of use was one big thing. Minimal lines of code was another thing. Developer economics really, really matter at this point. Um, the second thing that mattered a lot was the language of choice. Solidity was made at the time when there was no viable means or easy viable means to represent programs that we could be sure that once executed would not have root level access to people's hardware. So obviously if uh, smart contracts were built in x86 web assembly or, or just traditional programming languages, they could have access to your files, photos, videos. Uh, nobody would really, really want the fact that running a blockchain might ac might cause concerns or issues like that on the users who are running full nodes. Solidity was made uh, alongside the EVM bytecode standard was made to, to address that sort of issue back then. But all of a sudden, you've got, I think it was three to four years ago, the Mozilla Foundation all of a sudden, being the browser vendor that they are, they really care about uh, safety, security concerns when it comes towards running untrusted code, especially like the code that, that powers up our, our browsers today, JavaScript. Was, was looking for a high performance assembly standard and eventually invented WebAssembly to have an all sorts of new means to represent untrustworthy code that could then be executed directly in a user's browser that, that uh, by design we can ensure does not have access to a user's files or hardware devices at all. Being the browser vendor that they are, naturally a lot of language communities sort of uh, consorted by them and thereafter like major program languages compilers like rust go c c plus plus assembly script in this case naturally as soon as the WebAssembly standard came out provided support in your compiler's backend so that th their programming language can compile all the way down to WebAssembly, which is a big thing yeah web web assembly is big deal for sure definitely so it was very natural for us then Sure, it's a new standard, but it's already very mature, stable, and is being used to run a lot of high-performance web apps right now for us to adopt it as a de facto smart contract assembly language of choice. Um, and because that unlocks people to use a lot of traditional programming languages, they could effectively use all of the store developer tools they're aware of. Like the JavaScript community itself has easily 11 million developers. We're all of a sudden unlocking them to, to now being able to actually build smart contract apps using using the IDs they know and love, the the unit testing suites, integration testing suites, end-to-end -end testing suites, uh, fuzzing tools, all of that. All the tools they're, they're really comfortable with and not, such that they don't have to learn all, all these esoteric tools that are really just kind of coming out with the Ethereum developer ecosystem that a lot of blockchain platforms for some reason are still trying to ensure survive in a yeah. sense <laughs> yeah interesting that um just before we get onto the go-to-market strategy and you know building your own dApps and attracting developers um can we can we just give a really brief overview of the economics of the system how staking works and how you envision uh governance working so the governance model in itself it's proof of stake um we we had to basically kind of lean over a lot of the existing kind of proof of stake systems um primarily just because uh there, there's just one fundamental sort of 
safety concern with a lot of the modern proof-of-stake ledgers that you see out there. If you look at any of the modern proof-of-stake ledgers, whether it be Tendermint, whether it be Algorand or Ouroboros Prowse, all of these, these huge ones, they, they have some sort of notion of a committee in their consensus protocol, right? Yep. Like similar or akin to EOS having 21 block producers, maybe Definity has like a thousand uh, validators within a committee that sure might be intermittently shuffled, reshuffled, resampled, repicked every some amount of time. But, but, but there, there's just one huge concern here with all of these systems safety overall. If, if you had a network of a million nodes, would you trust a thousand, just a thousand of, of those nodes at any point in time to validate and finalize the transactions for all of those million other nodes within the network? Like the equivalent political example is if, if you've got a country of a million people, would you trust the government of a thousand people to monitor and govern every single action of each in individual? And would you consider that safe, <laughs> per se? Sadly, the not with that analogy. No. <laughs> <Indeed. Yeah. laughs> exactly. And and the surprising thing is, like all of these different sort of modern proof of stake ledgers, they're all doing just that. <laughs> Uh, and and of course it's it's scalable in a sense because uh, when you got to do it, uh, say you, you're you've got this this committee voting on whether or not a block is finalized, you got to process a thousand different votes. Uh, each each person in the committee gives a vote, and then they they tally it up and they say, all right, the majority rules, and and that block gets finalized. That that's perfectly all good and stuff, and and that's why proof of stake letters are so fast. But then then comes a concern. It definitely is not safe at all. No matter how you, even if you try to shuffle or try to hide the committee members, the point is, if all I had to do was, uh, as a hacker, take down just uh, a small set of that committee to halt the network, then that's obviously a big sort of safety vantage point. That, that's, that is a big concern. So specifically in terms of the governance model then for Wavelet, the biggest the most important thing is that we desperately needed to be able to attain the leaderlessness property that you would see in Bitcoin. In Bitcoin, there's no notion of having to rely on a committee or rely on a specific subset of network to be able to garner consensus out of your transactions, right? Hence why we, we really took a lot of time to sort of digest those details and figure out how can we port over that leaderless property into proof of stake and make proof of stake effectively as strong, uh, if not better than, than Bitcoin's present security model. We, we kind of coined it as LPOS almost. <laughs> so leaderless proof of stake in this case. And introducing that, we had to think of some fundamentally different kinds of economic concerns in, in, in de developing other incentives. For example, say that we were, we're going back to that whole directly cyclic graph of forks. How do we disperse uh, rewards? The, the con economics is transaction fees get uh, dispersed as rewards to uh, validators based on exactly how many transactions, and, and we got a mechanism for this, exactly how many transactions, how many sort of blocks uh, they validated and uh, finalized personally. So we had to come up with a new reward distribution scheme for that with respect to 
exactly how much activity or how much contributions a validator made to the network. And on top of that, we, we had to come up with an entirely new way to weigh a validator's opinion so that anyone can effectively become a validator. Anyone can participate in the consensus of the network uh, without being randomly picked or elected to be into a, inside a committee. That's just overall how I'd say the, the economics of the whole kind of way the network works. It's anyone can be a validator to stake something like 100 pearls, a very small amount, and you're governed, you're, you're provided with the task. People will start sending transactions to you. Uh, you personally validate them and you can show proof that you validated them by appending transactions to the graph stating that you validated these batch of transactions and you get compensated transaction fees from those uh, transactions who send those transactions to you um, over time. So it's it's effectively a very, very sort of leaderless yeah. uh, independence governance scheme. And is the... Is the the reward, is that a function of the amount of pearls that you're staking at all or just a function of which transactions you validate? Just a function with respect to how many transactions you've personally validated. So the notion is if you've got more stake, uh, there's going to be a higher frequency or, or there's going to be more transactions definitely coming your way because people want your transactions validated fast yep. and, they, and they would pinpoint to you to, to want to send your transaction to you. Uh, this is just to make sure that the system is overall fair and we can like sort of really mitigate as much as possible the whole rich gets richer, poor gets poor kind of dilemma going on. Interesting. Yeah, great explanation. Uh, Dorji, why don't we pivot to you? Uh, talk about the go-to-market strategy. There's a, quite a few partnerships that you've uh, you've lined up. Let's let's educate the audience on what you're trying to accomplish here and, and how, how this is just step one of your grand go-to-market strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think the first thing we'll iterate is this is uh, a long, a long-term project. You know, we absolutely understand that there's a lot of short-term volatility in the markets, and there's a lot of you know short-term announcements. But just coming back from the technology perspective, like looking at decentralized cloud, you know, we have partnerships with um, Telcom, which is uh, the Indonesian state carrier, the Telco, which has 183 million um, handphones. We have a, a partnership with the Indian government's innovation uh, department, which sits under the prime minister's office, Nidhi Ayog. Um, and that's primarily because India has uh, 500 million. So they're up to 500 million mobile handphone users using three times the mobile broadband uh, content per month than, uh, than an average American user. So 8.8 .8 gigabytes. So again, a huge market, oh, wow. particularly given. Yeah, it's quite amazing. They've got the lowest um, broadband costs in the world and you can kind of see how given that their per capita GDP is around the $2,000 US mark, if you're able to generate them $10 or $20 a month, you know, that's potentially up to, you know, 10% of their of their average income. I mean, that's that's quite a significant amount and, and they all have access to smartphones and, and broadband. So long term, so that's, that's where the hockey puck is going. Um, and we also have actually like some of our lead lead token holders, people like, you know, Bitmain, a lot of people who have mining pools, F2 pools, investment arm, people like that. So they obviously bring a lot of horsepower in terms of bootstrapping the, the compute network. But then, but then in the, the shorter medium term, so that's definitely the longer term where we, we want to build towards um, this ubiquity of, um, of, of mobile compute being able to be contributed on a decentralized ledger per LIN. So, so in the short to medium term, 
What's really fascinating is just looking at the immediate transaction for trade-related blockchain applications. So the first one we kicked off with was called Clarify. What Clarify does is on blockchain, we're just proving the traceability and the supply chain um, transparency. So if you look at followourfiber.com, that's our first client. So it's one of the world's largest rayon companies. They produce rayon, which is a, a fabric from from fiber, um, tree fiber, sourced from seedling all the way through to the bale of rayon that's created. And it's all on blockchain. Um, it's currently being fully certified. And um, you can kind of see how this is now the future of, of products. So uh, if you have a bad oyster, you know, should the provenance of that oyster show that the oyster was cat- caught here, was then shipped at this temperature here to here and has not spent more than this amount of time in a temperature which is potentially in a high food poisoning zone, for example. Um, specific example, owing to the oyster that I ate two weeks ago, <laughs> and I was actually thinking this would be a perfect example. Um, another example that we're working on, palm oil, we're working on commodities. So again, as mentioned, in, in Singapore, we're under uh, confidentiality agreements, but we have a number of major commodity players currently working and experimenting with us. Um, so just that's one example. And then the next application is looking at how we can take, for example, um, you know, the trade finance route. So if, for example, you're sending a shipment, like this is an oft-quoted example, if you're sending a shipment of goods from, from Singapore to Indonesia, you can send the shipment, the container in two days. And uh, what's interesting about that, though, is the paperwork because you need a bill of lading, you need letters of credit, you need certificate of origin, you need certificate of non-manipulation, you need, you know, phyto certificates if they're, you know, food-based or, or agricultural-based, and they take five days. So if all of these were executed on the blockchain, then you would actually have uh, a much faster transaction speed. So tying into the international trade part, we have a, a global partnership with the International Chamber of Commerce. And just as background, uh, the International Chamber of Commerce is the 100-year-old uh, multilateral organization based out of Paris. Uh, for the last 100 years, they've been regulating and creating all of the norms for international trade. So if you Google INCO terms, INCO terms are the trade terms by which every single trade transaction and sales agreement in the world are governed by. And so in September, they're releasing INCO terms 2020. And uh, we have the privilege of being their partner to build their ledger and also to build their smart INCOs, which are self-executing INCO terms. So if you imagine a sales contract for a shipment from one country to another country on a shipping container, traditionally that would be a paper sales agreement. We can now do that as a customizable self-executing smart contract where a sensor can tell you when a certain shipment passes a certain point and therefore self-executes to result in the obligations being transferred. And this means that you, instead of needing to have paper, surveyor, you know, physical audit, 600 pages of documentation that take days and days, you will move towards this, uh, this blockchain-based environment where trustless nodes and sensors are going to be able to self-execute. So that's hugely exciting. That's going to be launched in September. And uh, the ramifications for that are, are quite massive. Um, so if you think about it, the ICC has 45 million businesses under, under its uh, purview. And if you just think about 1% adoption, you know, you're talking about 450,000 businesses potentially paying whatever, $1,000 in ledger fees a year, or whatever the trade terminology or the, the transaction fees boil down to. Uh, we think that there's a very significant use case for a ledger that actually brings tremendous value because you're talking about trillions of dollars of working capital tied up as a ship is floating across the ocean for days and days and days. 
Right. Okay. And so you guys have uh, developed some dApps yourself, Clarify, Certify, Cloudify. What, what's the kind of medium term plan with those? Is that something that you intend to drive commercial adoption with or is that more just a demonstration of what the platform can do? Yeah, so we, we're driving adoption. I mean, that's what I, the first, the first product, Clarify, it already has paying customers. So we're, we're, we're clarifying a number of supply chains. Certify, um, so this is the next um, cab off the rank. So Certify will be uh, looking at anti-counterfeiting. So, you know, again, putting on the blockchain, the provenance, and then having certificates of authenticity. And then, um, and then, you know, Cloudify is the decentralized cloud platform, which is coming down the pipeline in a couple of years. So we do have a number of dApps, but this is really just for us to bootstrap our, our ecosystem. We are looking for good partners and indeed we're partnering and exploring partnering with, with, um, partners that can even build on top of, you know, what we're starting to build with Clarify and Certify and with the sales and the trades examples that, that I was just giving. So these will be unveiled in the next two months. Uh, with a bit more concrete and, and more partners that we'll be able to share. But, you know, you can kind of see how we are moving towards an ecosystem that when you think about it, if you think about, you know, on the very far, say, left um, is a more unrestrained, you know, kind of, I'm not going to say chaotic in a negative sense, but it's much more organic. If you look at, say, the Ethereum community and the ecosystem, that's at the far left. And then if you think about the far right, you've got Hyperledger and, you know, trade, which is totally centralized and private by say IBM, then we really see ourselves in the middle, obviously more leaning towards an organic network similar to, to Ethereum. But we also see that a lot of the mainstreaming that needs to be done requires trusted intermediaries like the International Chamber of Commerce. We've also signed with the Dubai Chamber of Commerce uh, to redistribute our products because they have 10 offices across the Middle East and, and Africa, and we just don't have reach there. So we are partnering with these types of organizations um, we've also worked with the uh, World Economic Forum and a few of these other sort of consortium-based uh, approaches. And, and so just coming back, so if you think about the spectrum, we definitely see ourselves as being more easy to engage for large organizations that are trying to make the jump. Uh, but we do not see ourselves anywhere near as centralized or as private as, say, an IBM. So, so just coming back, I think our model is we, we kickstart things with decentralized applications, which people can quite quickly and easily um, on board with if they want to. We're looking for partners to then build out the ecosystem. Uh, we certainly do not have a franchise on building everything on Wavelet. We're, we're open sourced everything. Testnet is, is pumping. There's lots and lots of developer activity. So we really, really wanted to use this opportunity. And thank you so much for the opportunity to, to address all your listeners and, and the developers out there. But this is a new ecosystem that's emerging. We'll be working very closely in terms of onboarding clients just because we have a tremendous amount of deal flow and a tremendous amount of mainstream access. So any developers that come onto our platform, we hope to provide a structured environment for them to, um, to, to, to be successful. Dorji, one follow-up question for you. When you're in market talking to these different institutions that dictate trade around the world, do you come head-to-head with any other uh, smart contract platforms or, or dApps that are also uh, you know, trying to win, win the favor of these institutions? No, not really. I mean, the biggest, obviously the biggest... Um, I wouldn't say competitor, but um, alternative is is Hyperledger. So, so IBM being IBM, you know, Big Blue, they are everywhere. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of the the corporate work. Um, they've moved extremely fast and aggressively. Even Amazon now has you know sort of very limited blockchain you know on the cloud services. 
but no, you know, no tokenized public blockchains. And, and that's why, you know, we see ourselves as the public uh, trade blockchain or the tr public hyperledger or the tokenized and public and trustless hyperledger, which isn't a private blockchain. So, so short answer to that. And I've had to, uh, unfortunately travel the nature of international trade is you have to travel quite extensively to, to go to these, these summits and, and meetings. So we'll be speaking for the World Trade Organization, you know, the WTO in, uh, in Geneva in December for the ICC Banking Commission with 600 banks in October. You know, in China, we've been invited. Um, so, so just to answer your question, we do not see uh, other blockchain projects that are public in, in our space. Traditionally, it's, it's who I'm knocking heads with really are the private suppliers, you know, people like IBM with their Hyperledger solution. And you also mentioned that in the supply chain, frequently you would use some sort of sensor to uh, upload uh, a transaction, if you will, to the to your blockchain. Who are you partnering with for the actual hardware components uh, for for the international trade implementation? So there's a this is the whole point, though. As a public ledger, we want to be interoperable with everything. We we just want to create APIs where anyone. So so where we see the world going, and we call this multi-factor authentication, is the quality of the data on the blockchain. Yes, the blockchain is immutable. Yes, the blockchain you know has the benefits that a blockchain has. A distributed ledger has the benefits that a DLT has. But ultimately, with the huge growth, the explosion of nanosatellites, drones, sensors, you know, you name all of the different IoT devices that are emerging, how do we then use this to make more efficient smart contracts and, you know, webhooks, you know, to, to trigger these self-executing uh, and sa thereby saving all of this administration? So short answer, we're working with any, any provider of sensors that hears this podcast, please come talk to us. And we're providing a very open platform with APIs that are easily insertable and, and applicable. Interesting. So, Doji, when, when do you expect to launch on mainnet and how are you thinking about getting the tokens distributed? Yeah, so, so just in terms of um, mainnet launch, we just released the public roadmap yesterday and uh, we'll be uh, releasing mainnet Q1 2020. And then in terms of token distribution, we will most likely be performing a token generation event in the next couple of months with the idea really of uh, encouraging more of the ecosystem participation, more engagement on the, on the, on the network and um, looking especially for developers and sensor producers and other participants who want to play around with the work that we're, we've been spending the last year and a half on. Awesome. Um, so I'll just conclude with some final questions. Um, we do have a lot of developers, a lot of very hireable people um, listening to the podcast. Any any positions that you want to advertise on the show? Um, what do you mean by advertise? Like, um, yeah, just any other, just kind of anything that that's top uh, of mind for us. Yeah, if you're looking to uh, make a hire in the growth team or. Uh, to work with you, Dorji, or make any hires on the software engineering team to work with Kenta is a good place to let people know. The biggest sort of thing I would say to all the developers out there is you should definitely try develop out on Wavelet. I mean, any sort of capacity whatsoever since the Rust, the assembly script SDKs, they're all out. Uh, they're fully functional and already a lot of really amazing sort of dApps have been built out. Um, it, it really takes, say, 15 to 30 minutes-ish sort of to write your own DAP, and we've got about seven official tutorials out right now about it. 
with a mix of community ones as, as well. So definitely, it's just we highly implore you to write your first app. It's almost equivalent to working with Firebase or any other kind of serverless platform you you can possibly know or imagine. Yeah, and on our side, you know, from the the business side, what we find most exciting is you know we're we're really looking at the democratization. Of, of trade, we're also looking really uh, deeply at how can we produce more efficiencies in trade facilitation. Um, when you think about it, no war has been um, started between two trading partners, close trading partners, um, and and you know basically the the mission is really like you know greater trade allows for um, less likelihood for conflict, and so we really think that actually you know decentralized systems you know can arguably we've reached peak centralization, so. So the big shout out really is anyone who's interested in international trade, anyone who's interested in universal basic income from from cloud compute, you know, we really welcome you to join the Perlin network. Um, This is one of those movements or missions that you're going to see, I think, for the next decade. And I think it's something which indelibly will will have an impact on the world. So really just looking for long-term token participants and and long-term network participants. So thank you so much for the opportunity, guys. Really, really have appreciated your, your questions. Yeah, thank you so much, Georgie. And thank you so much, Kenta. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Excellent. Our pleasure. <laughs> and uh, we'll definitely include what you're talking about, Kenta, in the show notes. Um, and, and likewise for you, Georgie, as well. Thanks again for joining us today. To learn more about Perlin, check out the show notes included in your podcast. And remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.